Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Psalm 90? Psalm 90. I was thinking about uh, how there's such a lack of peace in this world today, um, a lack of shalom. There's so many, uh, so much pain, uh, so much suffering, so many tears. Uh, day after day, we hear of uh, another attack. Uh, day after day, we hear of another um, life that is gone. Uh, day after day, we, we suffer um, struggles. Uh, perhaps even this morning, you're sitting here and, and dealing with struggles in your own life, uh, struggles in your uh, relationships, struggles at home, struggles at work, struggles with health. I don't know what they are. And the Psalms, I love the Psalms, you've heard me say that multiple times, because the Psalms are this opportunity to be able to um, pray back to God the struggles that we have. Sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I'm going through struggles and I can't even find the words to share. And, and Paul talked about that in Romans, when we don't even know what to say, we're almost groaning inside the Holy Spirit takes those words and puts them before the God, before God his Father, and brings them to his place so that they are like intercessory prayers to him. Well, the Psalms are that way. This Psalm that we're going to be looking at this morning is a Psalm of Moses, and therefore it's probably one of the oldest Psalms. And I want you to consider Moses' life. I want you to consider the heights that Moses went to. I want you to consider the depths. I want you to consider the fact that he was nearly killed, if it weren't, by the sovereign hand of God protecting him in Egypt. I want you to remember that little baby on the water as it was rowing in that little boat towards safety. I want you to consider that the one place of safety that we would never have considered would be Potiphar's house. And that's exactly where God had sovereignly ordained that this, late, this baby would go to. This baby would be on the water and would go to the very man's house that is seeking to take his people's lives. But what God did sovereignly in Moses' life was he, he protected him. He brought him there. And if you remember the story, his little sister Miriam is following that little bassinet. And as it's going down the water, he, she's following it and she sees that the family member of Potiphar grabbed that baby out of the water. And you remember by God's sovereign grace, God allowed for Moses' own mother to be there to actually I'll wean him and to, to care for him and to nurture him by sovereign grace. By God's sovereign grace, God took Moses through that time in Egypt and he remembered his God, but he was also educated in this world. Through sovereign grace, he took him from that murder that Moses did and he ran into the desert for 40 years. Moses probably thought his life was over. He probably thought he had no purpose. And it was there in the desert that God got a hold of him. And it was there in that desert that God spoke to him in that burning bush. And it was there in that desert that God says, I have a purpose and a plan for your life. And God did something amazing. And God says, I want you to go back and I want you to set my people free. 
Can you imagine the privilege that Moses must have had to, to hear that, God, my people can actually be free and you're going to use me? But then the fear that he had. You remember the story of Moses? He had the fear that I can't even speak in front of people. And what he did was he gave him his brother and he said, your brother's going to be your mouthpiece. Your brother's going to go alongside of you and be with you. Oh, that must have been an incredible thing that the brothers, my sister and my brother, and we come together and we were in ministry together. Incredible. And then Moses goes there and probably thinks that I'm going to tell, pa- tell Pharaoh to let my people go and that Pharaoh's going to let the people go. And you know the story, the plagues that had to happen and time after time. And just when he thought God was going to let the people go, he didn't. And just when he thought again, and then plague after plague until finally... Pharaoh relented, and he says, go. Oh, man, can you imagine the privilege of being Moses now leading almost 1.2 million people out of bondage as he is leading them through, out of Egypt, through the desert, to the promised land, and then what do we do? We get this wall again, the Red Sea. And then Pharaoh comes again to attack this people, to destroy this people, and God, what are you going to do? You brought us out here. And Moses prays, and then all of a sudden the Red Sea opens up, and this 1.2 million people walk through the Red Sea to the other side to safety. And then God causes that wave to come upon Pharaoh and his army. We're free! But now we've got 40 more years in the desert as God looks to deal with the rebellious nature of not only their hearts, but my heart and our hearts. And God is working time after time. He gave them a law. He gave them his blessing. He gave them food. He gave them his presence. And they rebelled against him. And for 40 years, Moses watched 1.2 million people die. Many people debate whether this psalm was written by Moses or not. I don't debate it. I think that this psalm could be set in many places in Moses' life, but James Montgomery Boyce gave us a place where he thinks it happened. In Numbers chapter 20, you don't have to turn there. I'll turn there, with, I'll turn there for you. There are three major events that happens. One, Miriam dies. The sister that was with him as he's going in the sea and moving away from death, certain death, to Potiphar's house, this sister who had been there to protect him died. His sister died. His brother, his second in command, the man that was with him, dies. Aaron dies. And then in Numbers chapter 20, what do we have? Moses gets so frustrated with the people that he strikes the rock and now he's not going to be allowed to go into the promised land and he is going to die. I want you to consider the backdrop of all of that as we read Psalm 90. I don't want to be morbid here, but the fact of the matter is unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, one out of one of us is going to die. And every single one of us hearing my voice this morning will stand before God and have to give an account for their lives, just like that 1.2 million people and the billions upon billions upon billions of people who have ever lived, they will stand before God. 
we will either stand before God in his holy justice or we will stand before God in his holy love and grace. This psalm talks about that. So read with me in Psalm 90. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses begins this psalm by saying, do you understand that God is your eternal refuge? Do you understand today that the only refuge that you have is God? He is your hiding place. He is your true home. God is the home of his people. The people are wandering in the desert. They're looking forward to a land, but the land in and of itself is not their hiding place. The land in and of itself is not their freedom. Your homes, your places of security are not the ultimate security. God is the ultimate security. Do you understand that he is the eternal resting place? Moses meditates on the fact that God is my rest. Most of us don't feel at rest this morning. Most of us don't feel at peace this morning. Moses looks at the fact that not only am I focusing and meditating on the rest that is found in you, but he meditates on the eternality of God. And as he is looking at life after life after life that's coming to an end, God stays God throughout. He's eternal. And so as you are going through the struggles and you are going through your difficulties, do you understand first that God is your eternal refuge? But there's a second thing that I think Moses tells us. Verse three, do you understand that humanity is mortal and we're under judgment? Verse three, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight or but yesterday when it is past or as the watch in the night. Moses now meditates on the sovereignty of God. That God, he talked about in verse two, that you formed me, you've created God. You have returned us. In verse five, he says, you sweep us away. In verse seven, he talks about the anger of God. In verse 8, he talks about the presence of God, but he is focusing right now on the sovereignty of God. God, you are in control. You're the one that returns us to dust. And as we look at the eternality of God, I think we need to look at the frailty of humanity. We're frail. We are fleeting. We're here for a moment and we're gone. I was thinking about this, that... um, He'll talk a little bit later in the psalm that, you know, we may get 70 or 80 years. Some of us may get 90, 100. Moses got 120 years. Amazing. But that is a blip on the radar screen of eternity. We are fleeting and we are frail people. He says in verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're almost helpless. They're feeble. Like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. Moses moves from the fact that he's meditating on the eternality of God and the fact that he's our refuge to the fact that God is our sovereign God. Now he focuses on the justice of God. He says this, you are the one that sweeps them away. I don't know if he's remembering the Red Sea. That's what I got in my mind. It may be the 1.2 million people that have been di- died because of God's judgment, 
but it could be at the Red Sea. You remember the great promise, and then all of a sudden, the judgment that God poured upon the nation of Israel, the people um, people of Egypt, uh, the Pharaoh and his army, and as he poured that judgment upon them, I think that's what he was talking about there. They've been swept away. I guess the question I have as I read this is, if God judges his own people this severely, how is he going to judge those that are outside of his family? Verse 6. In the morning it flourishes, the grass. It is renewed and in the evening it fades. Apparently in this culture there is a grass that rises up in the morning overnight. And it's green in the morning, um, at overnight and now in the beginning of the morning. But in the heat of the day that it comes, now by the end of the day this grass is withered. And it uses that as an example of what our lives are going to be like. Our lives are here for a moment, and then they're gone. So life is short and uncertain. Stephen Cole, he's a pastor. In one of his sermons, he, he kind of broke down these numbers, which when you sit, about, sit down and think about it, if 1.2 million people left Egypt and now they are going to die in the wilderness over 40 years that's an average of 30,000 people a year are going to die of your people that's an average of 82 people a day that are going to die of our people death is everywhere and you're sitting there thinking, God, you, you're, you're a hiding place. You're a rescue. You're the one that was taking us out of Egypt and through the desert. Why are you punishing us so greatly? Well, here's the answer in verse 7. For we've been brought to an end by your anger and by your wrath. We are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Here's the issue. We are frail. We are fleeting. But we are failures. God says that he has set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in light of your presence. You know what humanity tries to do with their sin? What do you do, do, what do, you do with your sin? I try to hide it, right? I don't want anybody to see it. I do it in the dark. I want to do it when nobody's watching. I don't even want to see my own sin. But now God, sin has been placed right in your face, God. He has shined a bright light on humanity's sin and he is saying, I see everything that you've done. Every thought, every word, every attitude, I have seen it. You know what it is for me? I get so frustrated when people disrespect me. I get so frustrated when the car in front of me cuts me off. I get so frustrated with stupidest things. And God, day after day, Every person in this world, every time that we have chosen not to honor him, not to respect him, not to value him, he sees that day after day and his anger burns more and more. You think you get angry over the smallest things. God sees every single person in humanity and no one is righteous. No, not one. And verse 7 tells us we've been brought to an end by your anger and your wrath. He talks about iniquity. He talks about sin. There is no secret sin when it comes to God. 
all sin is rebellion against God. There is no such thing as mere disobedience. None. And until you and I comprehend the depth of the problem, we will never understand the wonder of his grace. Until you and I come to the place where we understand that we are incapable of changing ourselves, we will never understand that we need to run to the only one that can. See, we tend to think too lowly of God and too highly of ourselves. And when we think so lowly of God and highly of ourselves, we do not see sin as the greatest enemy. We see God as our greatest enemy. So what's the reason for our mortality? Verse 9. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. Just like a groaning, we frail, we're fleeting, we're failures. And God says, I want to do something amazing in your life. The years of our lives, verse 10, are 70. Even by some strength, 80. And yet the span is but a toil and trouble because our lives are just a bunch of trouble and suffering and pain. And then they're gone and they fly away. You know, if you read scripture, it was interesting, just trying to get some numbers. Adam lived 930 years. Seth lived 912. Jared lived 962 years. Methuselah lived 969 years. And then we have a massive flood. And the numbers start to drop. Noah lives 950 years. Shem lives 600 years. Abraham, Father Abraham, lived only 175 years. And Moses lives 120 years. And we average 70 to 80. See, as sin takes hold, sin spreads its deadly disease, and our numbers start to drop. Verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger or the wrath according to the fear of you? How many people actually appreciate, understand, make themselves aware of the fact that we're fleeting and we're frail? How many of us actually make ourselves aware of that we're failures? How many actually think about the fact that our death is a byproduct of our sin? Because the wage of sin is death. That every single one of us is going to die because the fact that all of us are sinners. How many of actually think about the fact that Jesus Christ would never have died unless he took your sin upon himself? He would have lived forever. How many of us actually fear him? You know, I was thinking about this um, book <clears throat> written by um, a great author, um, Ed Welsh, he wrote this book, When People Are Big, God Is Small. And he talked in there about fearing God. Because in essence, I think that's the problem. Paul in Romans said, humanity has failed to fear God. What does it mean to fear God? Now, as I give in this first part of the sermon, I, I guess it is possible for you to sit here feeling, oh, that sigh that Moses had just talked about. Maybe you're feeling discouraged. 
Maybe you're feeling anxious. Maybe if you only hear the first part of this sermon, you'll feel depressed. Maybe you'll feel fearful. What God wants is not for you to fear that. He wants you to fear him. What happens when humanity gets to a place when they fear him? They can only get to that place when they understand the depth of their problem. Sin is the greatest problem, and Moses recognized that. Sin disturbs every human relationship. Sin distorts, sin defines, sin degrades, sin debases, sin destroys. I want you to consider that there was a point in time where Adam and Eve walked with God and now they don't walk with him any longer because of sin. I want you to consider that Adam and Eve could walk in nature and pet this bear and not have to fear. I want you to consider that Adam and Eve were one with one another and now it's been separated. And it's been separated because of one problem, sin. Sin attacks every human being from the womb. Every broken marriage, every disrupted home, every shattered friendship, every argument, every disagreement, every pain, every tear is a byproduct of human sin. And then when we get a sense of that, we get a sense of how deep our problem is. There's another book that I love, I would encourage you. It's written by uh, Cornelius Plantiga. And he wrote this book and it is entitled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. And in this book, he talked about this idea of peace, shalom, which we are supposed to have in this world. It's interesting that the Jewish person will greet one another with this word shalom. Shalom means not only just peace, but it means flourishment. It means fulfillment. It means satisfaction. And we are lacking that peace today. And most of us long for that peace Plantica in his book talked about the fact that not only are we lacking shalom today, but shalom has been vandalized because we are failing to trust God. He talked about sin being a parasite. It's an interesting concept. A parasite leeches onto something and it grabs from it. That's what sin does. Sin leeches on to something good in your life and wants to suck life out of it. That's what sin does. And what Plantica argues in this book is that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. So I want you to consider that the glory of God has not been honored. The holiness of God has not been reverenced. The greatness of God has not been admired. The power of God has not been prized. The truth of God has not been sought. The wisdom of God has not been esteemed. The beauty of God has not been treasured. The goodness of God has not been savored. The faithfulness of God has not been trusted. The promises of God have not been relied upon. The commandments of God have not been obeyed. The justice of God has not been respected. The wrath of God has not been feared. The grace of God has not been cherished. The presence of God has not been prized. The person of God has not been loved. And Moses says that all of the pain and all the frailties and all the fleeting aspects of our lives and all the futility is a byproduct of the fact that we are failing to put the one in the center of our lives that need to be there. 
So Moses cries out to God. He doesn't want to feel discouraged. And as Moses writes this psalm, he's not discouraged. So if you're feeling discouraged this morning, you're missing it. Because what Moses recognizes that in the midst of all of this suffering and all of this pain, there is a God who I can trust in. There's a God who I can praise. And that I can not only be fleeting and failure and futile, but I can be forgiven and free. That's the beauty of this gospel. That God can do something amazing in your life to forgive you of all of those sins. That I can stand before God and not have to fear his wrath any longer. I don't have to, I can stand before God and not have to fear his anger any longer because I am forgiven and I have been set free from that. That's what the people of God should be amazed in. He prays a prayer and he says, God, I rely upon you. And he says in verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may have a heart of wisdom. So the first thing is that he says, please, God, give us wisdom. Please, God, give us wisdom. See, I think my problem and your problem is this. Man trusts in themselves. God said in Jeremiah, let the not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boast boast in this, that he understands me, God, and knows me, that I am the one who's righteous. See, what we do is we uplift ourselves. God, the wise thing is to uplift God. So the first thing that Moses prays is that God, please give us wisdom. The second thing that he prays in verse 13 is, God, please be compassionate to us. Return, O Lord, have pity on us. Return means to relent. It means to turn from your fierce anger. Revoke the sentence upon us. Forgive us, bless us. And he says, have pity upon us. Have compassion upon us. Moses prays that God would grant wisdom. Moses prays that God would do this work and in their lives. And now Moses prays that God would satisfy them. Verse 14. In the morning, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. See, we must be weaned from the belief that we will ever be satisfied in this world. We must be weaned from the belief that anything in this world is ever going to ultimately satisfy us. Only God can. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad. Moses cries out for that. Augustine said this, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until we rest in you. John Piper put it this way. He says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, when you find your satisfaction in God, that is where you're going to find your forgiveness and freedom in God. So Moses prays that God, please give us wisdom. Moses prays, please give us compassion. Moses prays, please help us to be satisfied. Moses prays in verse 15, please change us. Change us. Make us glad for as many days as you afflicted us. He recognizes God's the one that's afflicting them. And for as many years as we've seen evil, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to your children. God, change me. Do something radical in your people. Don't let us walk out of this service this morning the same Help me to be a different husband. Help me to be a different father. Help me to be a different man. Change me. And Moses wasn't looking at all the death and destruction around. What he was looking at is a God behind 
and above that. Moses makes two more petitions before we end. He says in verse 17, God, please favor us. Let your favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us. What he wants is that God would look down upon them. I wonder if Moses was thinking about his brother giving this ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance or his favor upon you and grant you what? Peace. Shalom. I almost wonder if that's where Moses was thinking as he was thinking about his brother and thinking about his brother was gone and he was looking to the God who was ultimately going to grant peace. So Lord, I pray that you would grant us wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would grant us compassion. Lord, I pray that you would satisfy us. Lord, I pray that you would change us. Lord, I pray that you would grant favor upon us. And then he says, Lord, I pray that you would make my life count. The end of verse 17. He began by saying, let the favor of the Lord, our God, be upon us and then establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. God, make my life count. I don't know if I have 50 years on this earth and that's it. I don't know if I'll be blessed with 90. I don't know if I will be gone today. I don't know if I will be gone in 50 years, but I will be gone at a time. The question for me and the question for you is this, are you aiming at making your life count. So if you're feeling overwhelmed or anxious or depressed because of the sermon, you're missing it. Because Moses found comfort in that. Moses found comfort in a God who is his eternal resting place. He found comfort in a God who is sovereign. He found comfort in a God who is eternal. He found comfort in a God who is judge because Moses recognized that I am not going to stand under God's wrath any longer because I see God who is gracious and a savior. Is that your God this morning? See, that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into this world to deal with the greatest problem that you and I have, our sin and his wrath. And what Jesus Christ did for you and for me, if you trust in him, is that he lived every day for you, perfect, because I will never live any day perfect. And that he took the wrath and the anger of God upon himself. So any believer sitting here this morning, you are forgiven and you are free. I never have to fear that wrath any longer. I talked about Ed Welsh, and he had talked about the fact that most people, when they fear, they tremble, they have discord, they have this level of fear, and then it goes to this level of awe and apprehension and devotion, and then it goes to the fact that I trust you, God, and I could worship you, God. They moved from a God of holy justice to a God of holy love. Is that the God that you trust in this morning? That is truly a judge, but that judgment has been taken care of in Christ, in Christ alone. I want you to consider a couple of things as we go. Some bring home points, if you want to call it application points. The first thing I want you to consider is that our only resting place is ever going to be found in God. Your bank account will not do it. Your house will not do it. 
Your health will not do it. That's not where your satisfaction comes in. Your foundation must be and can only be God. The second application I want you to consider is this. I want you to live every moment in light of eternity. Moses got 120 years. We may get 80, 70, maybe less. But I want to be able to live every day without regret. I want to be able to tell my wife every day that I love her and my children. I want to give them a hug. I don't want to be able to end that day with the possibility of not having that next day. Because I don't know what will happen tomorrow. The third application I want you to consider is this. I want you to go to war against sin in your life. Because sin is your greatest enemy, not God. John Owen put it this way, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Somebody also said that this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. So recognize your foundation is God. Recognize that you need to live every moment in light of eternity. Recognize that you need to be going to war against sin. Be teachable. I think that's the next application I want you to consider. Moses said, teach us to number our days. Be teachable. I want you to consider, be amazed at God's grace. Why is it that I can't seem to overlook the smallest offense against me sometimes, but God has overlooked every sin that I've ever committed against him in Christ? And then finally, I want you to number your days. I want you to live with the purpose to make every day count. Every relationship count. Every moment count for the glory of God and the good of others. So Lord, I pray that you would teach us to to number our days. Moses wrote that you are slow to anger abounding in steadfast love that you do not always hold your anger against us. What a beautiful passage of scripture. Aaron had prayed that you would bless us and keep us, make our face sh- your face shine upon us. Father, the clear indication is this. Sin is going to bring suffering and pain. That's not going to be stopped this side of heaven. There is going to be loss and grief. But God, what you've done for us in Christ is that you have granted us forgiveness and freedom. Father, help us to be amazed at what you've done for us. Help us to be amazed that the truly offended one, you, have been merciful and so kind to us. Father, day after day, when we are tempted in our high-handedness to sin, help us to remember the cost of that sin, that it cost your son his life. Lord, I pray that you would help us not only to see the cross, but help us to see the empty tomb. That empty tomb is a verification that you accepted Christ's payment, that I don't ever have to worry about your anger and wrath any longer, that I can be forgiven and free, and that even though I may die, and I will, I look forward to an eternity where there will be no more death, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. For those that are here in this room that have never trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes, 
to the fact that you're the only satisfying one in this world and change them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.